Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. I'm Tom Brenneman, and you are dialed in. And, man, I'm telling you, we are dialed in this week. This is the first of two parts, the next two shows with baseball's all-time hits leader, Peter Edward Rose. Of course, on the ineligible list to be in the Hall of Fame, despite the fact that he holds 17 major league records. Uh, He holds seven more National League records. Uh, Played in more winning games than any player in the history of sports. More hits, more bats. You name it, he's the guy. But he's not in the Hall of Fame. We're going to talk about Pete Rose in this first episode. Growing up in Cincinnati, getting to the major leagues, Sparky Anderson being his manager, and his fight with Bud Harrelson at second base in the 1973 playoffs. You're listening to Dialed In. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist. Call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Peter Edward Rose was born on April the 14th, 1941 in Cincinnati, Ohio. He just turned 80 years young. He was one of four children born to Harry, Francis, Pete Rose, and Laverne Rose. He played baseball and football at Western Hills High School in Cincinnati and was signed by his hometown Reds to play professionally starting in 1960. Less than two and a half years later, he became the Reds' regular second baseman and was named the National League's Rookie of the Year. Two years later, Rose, switching from the infield to the outfield, led the National League in hits and at-bats, finished sixth in the MVP voting. He would go to his first of what would be 17 All-Star games. In 73, Rose was named the National League's most valuable player, collecting 230 hits and a 338 batting average. In 75 and 76, Rose led the Big Red Machine to back-to-back World Series titles, winning most valuable player, the 75 Classic over Boston. That same year was named Sports Illustrated's Sportsman of the Year. In May of 78, Rose picked up hit number 3,000. And from June through August that summer, would flirt with Joe DiMaggio's Major League record 56-game hitting streak. Rose hit in a National League record 44 in a row. In 79, off to Philadelphia, where he led the Phillies to three playoff appearances and their first World Series title in 1980. In 84, his lone year in Montreal, he joined Ty Cobb as the only players in baseball history to collect 4,000 career hits. At the end of that season, he returned to his hometown in Cincinnati as player-manager for the Reds. He would play through 1986 and in 1985 would become baseball's all-time hits king. 
In August of 89, after a months-long investigation, Pete Rose voluntarily uh, was put on permanent place of baseball's ineligible list for gambling on baseball. Despite holding 19 major league records and seven more national league records, Rose, 30-plus years later, is still ineligible for baseball's Hall of Fame. And it is a pleasure to be joined by a man I've known for a long, long time, and he's no different back in 1974 than he is today in terms of the way he treats people, and I mean anybody, and that's Peter Edward Rose. Hey, what was it like growing up in the Rose household when you were when you were born and growing up on the west side of Cincinnati? Everything, everything was about sports, Tommy, and I'll tell you why. Because I was so fortunate to have a father who worked for Fifth Third Union Trust Company. Actually, he worked there for 37 years. Uh, he was an athlete, and I was the ball boy on the on the uh, uh, basketball team, the bat boy on the baseball team, and the water boy on the football team. So he he was always going to sporting events, and I was in the front seat going to sporting events with him. So I grew up in sports, and my dad was real fundamentally sound as a player in all sports. And I think that's one thing, one edge I had when I played Major League Baseball was I was fundamentally sound, and your dad would verify that. I just didn't, I didn't make mental mistakes. Sure, I made errors. Everybody makes errors, but uh, there's a proper way to play the game, and and there's a not so proper way to play the game. And I played the game uh, the right way, and it gave my chance, my team a better chance to win. You had an uncle, correct me if I'm wrong here, Pete, who actually worked as sort of a bird dog scout for the Reds. It actually helped you land that first professional contract. Is that right? Well, he's the only reason I got a contract. He he worked for a gentleman named Buzz Boyle, who was the big scout around Cincinnati. And my, my uncle Buddy, who lived in Dayton, Ohio, uh, he, he convinced the Reds that I would grow. Because it wasn't that I didn't have the ability to sign a contract in 1960, Tom. It's just that I... When I graduated from high school, I weighed 154 pounds. And they weren't knocking the door down to sign guys that weighed 154 pounds that played second base and were switch batters. Now, and, what? Uh, he, he, he got me an opportunity because it, the uh, general manager at that time was a guy named Phil Sagi, mm-hmm. uh, who was real good friends with my uncle Buddy. And uh, I, they wanted me to wait till the next year to go out. But I went out the day after I graduated from Western Hills High School and reported uh, to Geneva, New York. And lo and behold, when I got to Geneva, I was never on a vacation in my life, Tommy. Now, all of a sudden, I'm on an airplane, and I'm looking out, and I'm saying, how in the hell is this airplane (laughs) up in the air? Okay, then I I fly to Rochester, and I take a Greyhound, first time on a Greyhound, to Geneva. And I get to the ballpark the next day, and the second baseman, now don't forget, I'm two days out of high school. The second baseman on that team, was Antonacio Perez, and they moved him to third and put wow. him to second. Right. So me and Tony Perez have been friends since uh, June of 1960. In 1963, you're in the big league camp. Yeah. And, and allegedly, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, I mean, I read a story about it, I don't know if it's true, of where you got your nickname, Charlie Hustle, from Yankees Hall of Fame pitcher Whitey Ford. They were playing, uh, the Reds were against the Yankees in a hall of, uh, in a spring training game. Is that true? Here's what happened. I, I went to spring training in 63, Tommy, as a non-roster player. And the reason I got to go is because uh, I just come off of two MVPs and I hit 330 uh, in Tampa with 30 triples. And I hit 330 in Macon with 17 triples. And we won championships in both places. And in those days, you like to go to spring training with the big club strictly because you got big league meal money for an extra two and a half, three weeks. And we got a game over in Fort Lauderdale, and I'm on the, I'm on the traveling squad. And I'm, my day's done. I'm ready, ready to go take a shower and wait for the bus. And we had a coach named Mike Reba. And he said, where are you going, kid? I, I said, I'm going to go do my run. He said, you got to wait for the bus to go back to Tampa. It's a four-hour drive. Wait around. You might get in the game. And all of a sudden, Hutch used me to pinch run. A guy hit a, a base hit about 10 feet to the left of the the left fielder, I went in the third head first, and this guy popped up to Tony Kubek, who was playing shortstop. Wow. He's back one, and no one's going to throw me out back in the shortstop. And I went in the home head first, and we won the game 2-1. to one. And after the game, Whitey and Mickey were talking, 
And I don't know which one said it, but one of them said, did you see that Charlie Hustle beat us today? Next day in the New York paper, it said Charlie Hustle beat Yanks. No kidding. Well, well, that is a great story. You know, after that 63 season, um, I never knew this about you, and I've been around you a lot of times. Uh, You entered the United States Army Reserves. You're assigned to Fort Knox. You you go six months active duty, and and you go to basic training. Uh, You help train the next platoon. Pete, did you learn anything in those six months being in the military that you think made an impression upon you uh, even to this day now and through your well, professional career? I think I didn't need it that time, Tommy, but you certainly get it when you go to the military is discipline. And, uh, you know, I was actually scrubbing the mess hall floor. Now, imagine this. I'm on the floor scrubbing the hall, the, the mess hall floor, and they say you got a phone call. And it was uh, the gentleman, is it Tom Lang from New York? Yeah. Yeah, he called to tell me I was Rookie of the Year. Or Jack Lang, Jack Lang, forgive Jack me. Lang. You're right, yeah. Jack Lang. He called to tell me that I was Rookie of the Year in the National League. <laughs> then when I when I did my basic, uh, we went to Fort Thomas. We were in the reserves. And Alex Johnson and Johnny Bench were in the same, same reserves. And that means you had to spend two weeks out of every year. And when we went to the free service, believe it or not, we become cooks. Why do we become cooks? Because when you had the weekend meetings, you could go at 5 o'clock and you were done at 12 o'clock so we could still make the day games if they were on the schedule. And me and Johnny and Alex were in the same unit over in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. We uh, couldn't cook anything, Tommy. We <laughs> couldn't cook pancakes. <laughs> It didn't matter. You made it to the ballpark <laughs> by the day game. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah. You know, by 65, in days, Pete. In those, days, in those days, most of the Saturday games were all day games. And the Sunday games were all day games. By 1965, you have mm-hmm. become now one of the top hitters in all of baseball. You finished six in a league in the most valuable player uh, balloting. The first of ten. I mean, it's unbelievable. Major league record. First of 10 seasons of 200 or more hits. Mm-hmm. Did did that season sort of catapult you, or did you already have that mindset that you thought you were you were one of the best? But did that sort of verify well, that, that yeah, I, I'm there what, now? Here's what happened. Okay, 63, I won rookie year. 64, I hit 269 or something. And I had, a, I, I had, I had to improve as a hitter. So what did I do? I went to Venezuela mm-hmm. playing the Venezuelan uh, Winter League. Okay, and the reason I went to Caracas is because the manager there was Reggie Ortero, who was our third base coach. And as you know or may not know, you don't want to go to the Ven- you don't want to go down and play one of them countries if you don't know who's the manager because they'll wear your ass out. If you're a pitcher, they'll ruin your arm. <laughs> if you're a hitter, they'll just wear you out. And when I went to uh, Venezuela, that's where I really learned how to hit, Tommy. I hit 340 in that league, and uh, I led the league in runs scored, which is important because in Venezuela, when you play winter ball, actually back in the 60s when I played winter ball, at the ballpark, all the people in the stands, they always bet on who's going to score the first run. And I led all for the Caracas, okay, and I led the league in runs scored. So they love me in Venezuela. <laughs> but I, I, I hit 340. Then I came back and, and, and hit 312 or something and, and 65. And I ended up hitting 300 or more in the next 10 or 12 years. Right, right. So I owe it to Venezuela because that's where I really become confident as a hitter. Because Venezuela is, was a good league. They had some really good pitchers. And I went down there and worked hard. Uh, we had weeks when we played two games, some weeks three games, one week we played four games, and every other day we weren't playing. Reggie hit us out there working and practicing. And uh, I had Cesar Tovar on my team. I had Vic, uh, Victor Davalio on my team. My first baseman was Ken Harrelson. You know him from oh, the White Sox. Of course, Sox. of course. My shortstop was Chico Carascal. We had a really good ball club, and we won the championship. And uh, – that's you know I won a championship in Macon, I won a championship in Tampa. Tommy, we won a championship in the Florida State League in 1961, and our manager was Johnny Vandermeer. 
And you know what the owner of the team gave us for winning the Florida State League Championship? What? <laughs> he gave us he gave us all his Zippo lighter. <laughs> 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 and not one of us not one of us spoke, but he gave us all his Zippo lighter. <laughs> 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 and of course we won in sixty two at Macon. And that team had six or seven guys on that team that made the Reds. Mel Queen, Shamsky, Teddy Davison, Tommy Helms, Gus Gill made Cleveland, okay, uh, hunted the pitcher, me, uh, seven of and the manager of that team was Dave Bristol. Yes, sir. He made the big leagues. Yep. yep. And we won the, the, Florida, the uh, uh, Sally League that year. We beat Knoxville and. Uh, that's interesting because I'm going to Knoxville Saturday for a banquet, so uh, that that'd be some reminiscent, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, you know, you mentioned Dave Bristol. He's your manager now. Um, years later in the big leagues, yeah. yeah. Uh, but in 1970, the Reds make a change and they hire yeah. this, you know, little known manager. Uh, he had managed in the Reds minor league system. He was a third base coach only one year with a San Diego Padres named Sparky Anderson. He's not even 37 years old yet. What do you recall about the first time you met him? Well, first of all, let me explain something about Dave Bristol, okay? Dave Bristol put the Big Red Machine together. Sure. Sparky developed it. That's the way I like to say it, because I came up in 63, okay? Helms come up in 66. Bench came up in 68. Uh, Concepcion come up in 69. Perez come up in 65. So all the pieces were in play, okay? And Sparky really developed it. And I'll never forget uh me me and Johnny for some and Tony for some unknown reason liked Sparky. We really liked Sparky because he was a fair guy. And I think once your star players like Sparky, the rest of the team's gonna follow suit. And Sparky uh, let me tell you Tommy you know Sparky. Sparky was the most street smart guy I've ever been. Yep, no doubt. Not book smart. Not book smart. Okay, and Sparky, Sparky used to tell me, and this is a secret to coaching or managing whatever sport you may be in. There's three ways you can treat a person. Think about it. You can pat him on the butt, kick him in the butt, or leave him alone. That's the only three ways you can treat a person. And Sparky knew who to kick, who to pat, who to leave, who to leave alone. And you know, Johnny you had a patting. Davey you had a patting. Me, doggy, leave us alone. Some guys you had to tell him, had to tell him how good they were. Davey you had to tell him how good he was, and 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 that's why Sparky was so successful. You know, he was he was one set of rules. You know, uh, I remember we used to go to spring training, and you know, me and Johnny and 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 Doggy were stars, and he knew I liked to watch NCAA basketball. Uh, he knew Johnny liked to play golf. He knew Doggy liked to go fishing. He used to tell you come in and get your and I'll give you Saturday off where you can go fishing, doggy, or you can go watch the basketball game speed. And he said, you other guys, if you get to their status, I'll do the same for you. Mm-hmm. So he was fair that way, and, and he was consi- consistent that way. That's why everybody likes Sparky. Because Sparky, uh, he didn't pull no punches. You know, he, he was a little guy, but he was a fiery guy. Yep. But he was a very, very book smart, uh, or, you know, street smart guy. That, that That's where he, that's where he stood out among all the other guys. And I played, hell, I played for 12 managers. And and I can tell you the best manager I ever played for was me when I was player manager. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, how you rate managers. Okay, I rate managers this way, wins and losses. And based on that, Sparky was the best manager I ever played for. Hey, I owe my whole career to Fred Hutchison. He went out on a limb and gave me a job. Sure. You know, I went to Philadelphia for five years, Tommy, and I played for four managers in five years. How odd is that? Yeah, yeah. I played for Ozark. I played for Downs Green. I played for Pat Corrales, and I and I and I played for Paul Owens. Four managers in five years. Very unusual for a big league program. Well, especially a big league program that was winning some games. And, and we'll get back to that in a second. I, I, in 1970, everybody knows about the All-Star game, the collision at home plate with Ray Fossey. Um, you know, as you've gone through your life, Pete, and you've been asked about that play five million times, Yeah. do you look back on that play any differently now than you did then or a year after it happened or five years after not, it happened? Not at all, Tommy. 
Tommy, I was within the rules. If we were playing today, Fossey was blocking the plate, and you're not allowed to do that. And be, be honest with you, I went over him and tagged the play with my right hand. Okay? I got criticized for that. Reality, I missed the next three games. He didn't miss any. And he went on to play nine more years. Plus, plus, Sam McDowell, who was a friend of mine, was on Cleveland. And he made the all-star team that year. And he called me about a week and a half, two weeks before the game because I already had dinner arrangements with Sam. And he said, they just they just uh, announced that Ray Fossey is going to be on the team. Can he go out to eat with us? I took him down to Sailor Park on a boat called Sycamore Shores that Pete Hahn owned. And I took them both out to dinner. And we stayed out till like 12, 31 o'clock. And all, all Ray Fossey did is ask me every question in the world about Johnny Bench. Okay, because he was the next Johnny Bench. Sure. And and I'm trying to win the game, Tommy. Uh, the advantage I had is Ray had not had the ball in his glove yet. It was like two feet from him. He's reaching for it. Because if he'd have caught the ball, he'd have planted me into next week. You know, I remember the next year on opening week of the season, we're playing the Dodgers and Duke Sims is catching. And I'm going on contact at third. And he's got the ball waiting for me. He buried me. I was busy for the next three innings on the same kind of situation. However, that situation, he had the ball. Ray did not have the ball. In 1972, Joe Morgan comes to the Reds in a huge trade from Houston. I mean, big-name guys are in his deal. Lee May and Tommy Helms and Jack Billingham. and, And here comes Joe. Geronimo. Geronimo. What did you think of Joe Morgan as a player? I don't know if you knew him at all as a guy. You guys became lifelong friends. But when he first came to the Reds, you thought what? Well, Joe Joe was stuck down there with two stars, Joe Morgan and Cesar Cedeno. And they weren't going anywhere. And uh, uh, I, I had no idea the impact Joe would make. I remember when Joe came to the team, I looked at him and I was kidding him. And I said, Joe, let me ask you a question. I said, do you like to hit when the pitcher's in the stretch? He said, hell yeah, everybody does. I said, well, you see that office door over there with Sparky's office? He said, yeah. I said, you go in there and you tell Sparky you want to hit after me. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute, Tommy, the next next day he was hitting second. Did he actually go say it to him? Yeah. He, he went, did. Oh, I want to, to hit after Pete. <laughs> Hell, I got on base 4,900 times. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. Turned out pretty and, good and, for Joe. Here, here, here's about Joe, and I love Joe Morgan. I love Tony Perez, okay? I love Johnny Bench. Those, those guys are, are great players and, and great individuals. And God bless Joe. We lost Joe a month, mm-hmm. month and a half ago. But, but Joe Morgan was, without a doubt, uh, the most intelligent player I've ever played with. You know, he was like me. He he had he had some uh, some situations where he was sh- short in. You know, I mean, there's guys who could run faster than him. There's guys who could hit the ball further than him. There's guys who could feel as good as him. But he had the edge. He, I, I used to watch Joe Morgan for all the years I played with him, Tommy. You can ask your dad this, okay? Joe Morgan will be on first base, and everybody at the ballpark, everybody in both dugouts, all the umpires, the pitcher, the catcher, everybody knew he was going to steal the yep. base, and he still stole it. And, and he, he wasn't the type of guy just to steal bases, to steal bases. He stole bases when it meant something as far as the outcome of the game. You understand what I'm saying? Sure, Absolutely. Absolutely. He he was still second when everybody knew he was going to steal. I don't know how the hell he did it, but he, he was, he was a great base stealer without the statistics. I mean, you know, Ricky Henderson's got 1200 stolen bases, but I'll guarantee all 1200 didn't mean something as far as the game's concerned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Joe's stolen bases helped us win the game. And that's the way he played the game. That was a good thing about Joe Morgan. As far as I was concerned with the trade, uh, he didn't have success of winning in Houston, but when he came here, and you you know you take the field with with Perez, and you take the field with Concepcion and Griffey and Bench, uh, you know you're, you're kind of we're kind of used to the winning. 
because we went to the World Series in 78. We went to the playoffs in 73, went to the World Series in 72. So we, we knew a little bit about winning. Walk me through in that 1973 series. You, you, you're, you're the National League most valuable player that year. Uh, and in game three, Reds against uh-huh. the Mets, fifth inning, you go in hard like you have your whole career into second base with Buddy Harrelson. Uh, next thing you know, you guys are tangled up and, and there's a fight. What happened? Well, it's very unusual, Tommy. It probably was my fault because I never did pop-up slides. You know what a pop-up slide is, of right? Of course, yeah. When you slide and you're up, ready to go to the next base. And when I came up, my elbow, in those days, we used to wear the sunglasses underneath the bill of the hat, and you flip them down. You just hit the, the bill, and they would go down, and Buddy had those on. And when I came up, my elbow hit his sunglasses, and drove him into above his nose, and he wiped his, his his nose, and he saw blood, and he called me a name that I can't repeat. And all I did is grab him. I growl. Oh, he, he's a little guy, okay? He's a little guy. I grab him, and all of a sudden Wayne Garrett comes storming in from third base. That's who started the whole fight. Not me, not Bud, but Wayne Garrett. And, and it was funny to watch Buzz Capra and uh, Pedro Bourbon go at it. It got to the, oh, it did, it got to the point where uh, Bourbon ended up with, with Buzz Capra's hat, okay, and he starts chewing on it and ripping it up, and Buzz is following him around, picking up the pieces of the hat. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's the only hat he got or not, but <laughs> Buzz is, here's a piece, here's a piece, here's a piece, and Bourbon was going to beat the hell out of Buzz Capra. <laughs> and we end up losing. Uh, I, I believe we'd have won that uh, playoff if we'd have had Game Five at home. You got to remember, Tommy. Back in those days, uh, the playoffs were five games. Yep. And if you lose the first game, you're in trouble. Okay. And we took that to five games, and they had good pitchers. They had Seaver, Metlock, and Kuzman. They had some good pitchers. And uh, if we'd have had that Game Five in Cincinnati, I think we'd have won that series. And uh, they went on the World Series, and I think they got beat by Oakland. Yeah. Here comes 75, and Sparky comes to you and asks you about yet another position change. Uh, Coming in from left field to third base, so George Foster, uh, who came over from the Giants, can now get in the lineup. You recall that conversation? I mean, were you okay with the idea or or, or what? Absolutely. Okay, it's it's a, a Monday or Tuesday. Sparky calls me in the office. And he says, PD said, you got to help me. I said, what do you want, Spark? He said, we got to add some more offense to, to the lineup. I said, Spark, I'm leading the league in hitting. What the hell do you want me to do? <laughs> he says, I want you to move from left field. Uh, it was on May 5th, okay, uh, to third base. And this is Tuesday. And he said, when? Or I said, when? He said, uh, Thursday. So the next day I come out to the ballpark and Scherger hit me ground balls for about three hours. It was an off day. And then it was Gary Nolan's first day back. We're playing Atlanta. I'm playing third base. Okay, I played second base, so I had a little bit of idea how to play the infield. And the first batter up was Ralph Gar, mm-hmm. and he hit one over Gary's head, and I committed short hop it and threw him out at first. And I don't know if it just relaxed me or what, uh, but we went on to win two World Series after the, after that happened. But I understood uh, what Sparky was trying to do. Uh, because Dennis Mickey, I think, was playing third for us, and he wasn't doing much. And George Foster was over there just sitting to wait, waiting for an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because don't forget, when he was in San Francisco, he played behind uh, Willie Mays. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything different for, for George not to play. And uh, George Foster took advantage of that opportunity. You know, in 77, he had 52 home runs. I mm-hmm. think. It was a league MVP so, that year. Yep. Yes. So... Uh, you know, I, I moved from second base to third base one time to give Tommy Helms a, a, a chance to play. I moved from second base uh, to left field to give someone else a chance to play. If you're going to make the team better, uh, Tommy, uh, you know, it's just like when I went to Philadelphia for the 79 season. Hey, I'm 40 years old. I'm changing positions. I'm going to first base. Mm-hmm. If you can make your team better, what's the big deal about changing positions? You have to work extra hard. You know, I remember when I went to spring training that year for the Phillies for the 79 season, uh, the first two weeks of spring training, Jim Snyder and myself went down to the complex 
every day for two hours and worked at first base, just throwing me short hop, short hop, high throw, low throw, footwork, this, that. And that's why I think I've become a pretty good first baseman when I played for the Phillies and played for the Reds. Because I always, you know, I always, uh, I only won two gold gloves, but I remember one year in the outfield, I led the league in assists, didn't make an error, and didn't win the gold glove. Yeah, go figure. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I, I, I yeah. think you're still. I think you're still. If I'm not mistaken, I think you're still from a fielding percentage standpoint, uh, the top three all time in the history of Major League Baseball as an outfielder. Yeah, I was number one for I don't know. Who yeah, for a long, long time. You're right. It was only about the last fifteen or twenty years where somebody else uh, leapfrogged you who didn't have nearly but, as but long a forget, career. But don't forget, Tommy, I wasn't aggressive. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Not even a little bit. In '75, you guys put it all together. Yeah. Uh, great World Series, four games to three over Boston. Uh, you win the MVP of that World Series. Was that as a competitor, not necessarily individual accomplishment, but as a competitor, the greatest moment in 75 of your career? Oh, when I, when I hosted that trophy for World Championship, because we failed in 70, 72, 73, I mean, you finally understand uh, the ultimate goal is to win a championship. And once you get that feeling, you want to do it every year. And I just was ha- uh, lucky enough to participate in the most exciting World Series ever. Okay? It was a great series, great players. You know, when Carbo hit that home run down 6-3, six to, six to the pitch before that was the worst swing i ever seen Bernie take. And by the way, Bernie Carbo, I, I played against two guys. Bernie Carbo, and I never figured this out, and Rico Cardi from Atlanta. They're the only two guys, Tommy, that when they played the game, they carried their billfold in their back pocket. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they didn't trust the guy at the safe in the clubhouse, or, because I never, I, neither one of them made any money. <laughs> Bernie used to come up with that billfold in his back pocket, and Rico Cardi was the same. I never did. I never was able to ask those guys why they did that. That's funny. That is really funny. Carlton Fisk, I went up to bat the inning before. I said, Carlton, is this fun or what? We're playing in this greatest World Series ever. And I must relax him because the next next inning hit the ball over my head. The only problem, it went over George's head, too. That's and right. over the Jimmy fight. That's right. That was, uh, I, I remember after that, after that game, Sparky's in the clubhouse. He said, big red machine, my ass. I said, Sparky, relax. Did you see that celebration they had? They got one more game to play. They got to come back tomorrow. And then they actually had us three to nothing in the next game. Yeah, yep. Until Bill Lee threw that EFIS pitch to Tony Perez. You know, people don't understand how every every play is important, Tom. Okay? I'm on first base, and I forgot who hit the ball. It was either Bench or Perez. Uh, it, m- it must have been Bench. And he had a double play ball. And I went into Denny Doro, and I knocked him on his ass. He threw the ball in the dugout, okay, for an error. Guy went to second. The next pitch Billy threw was the Ephus pitch to Tony Perez, and he hit it over over the scoreboard, okay? Now we're 3-2, and we got all the momentum in the world. If I hadn't broke up that double play, they'd still be ahead 3 to nothing. That's how important every play is in a game that you play in baseball. You never know because there's no clock running. And once when Perez hit that home run, you could just see the compass in our dugout just rise because we had that we were the big red machine. We knew we were going to score runs after that. You win it again in '76. You don't lose a single postseason game. You sweep the Phillies. You sweep the Yankees. I mean, it, it was no contest. Um, it was boring. Yeah, it was boring. no kidding, no kidding. In '78, and I want to get to this because I remember I had never been to New York City. My dad had only been the announcer for the Reds for four years at that point, um, and I go with a friend of mine who's from New York City, and we happen to be there when you were in the the midst of the hitting streak. Um, right. You know, it, it starts in June. You rip off 44 in a row. Uh, by the time you hit 30, 35, I mean, the whole country is talking about it. From just a strictly personal standpoint, Pete, w- w- was that as exciting a time for you as any other in your career? Yeah, and I and I have to really thank Jim Ferguson, our PR director, because what Jim did, uh, which is necessary, is he kept the reporters 
interviewing me after every game away from the clubhouse. We used to have a separate room where I would go after the game because, you know, even though I got a hit and extended my hitting streak, you can't have 50 guys around my locker stepping on Joe's shoes or, you know, interfering with him getting dressed and Mm -hmm. stuff. So I really take my hat off to Jim Ferguson for doing that. And once, once you got to the big apple and I'm pursuing, uh, Tommy Holmes's record, 35 or 36, I don't remember, because I know I hit it off of uh, Craig Swan and Pat Zachary. Those are the two guys. I, And I'll never forget, uh, Tommy Holmes worked for the Mets. And when I when I broke his record, okay, he come out of the stands. He come to first base. I remember it like it was yesterday. He come out to first base. He shook hands with me. You know what he said to me? What did he say? Thanks for making me famous again. No kidding. That's what he said to me. No kidding. Yep, because he worked for the Mets, and he had that heat streak his whole life. And then, uh, you know, once I got past that, uh, it was fun for me, Tommy, because I was paid to get hits and score runs. And that's all I was doing. And I I think two two of the the hitting streak days, uh, you know, I had a little little, uh, success with hitting streaks. I I had seven over 20 game hitting streaks seven different times, uh, six actually, and one over 40. So I have seven 20-game or more hitting streaks. So I know a little bit about it. Uh, and, and there again, uh, you know, we were winning a lot of games in those days. And, you know, you never put what you're doing uh, ahead of what the team's doing. But I had a lot of support from all the players. And I, I think two of the games, I got bunts to, to extend the hitting streak. Well, the one time is when you guys hit around. It looked like you were not going to have it come to an end in the eighth inning, and then you guys bat around. Yeah, right, in the ninth inning. You're right. That was Philadelphia because I'm batting in in the eighth, and I checked swing, and the guy didn't call it a swing. He called it ball four. And I went to first, and I got to get up again the next inning. Right. You're you're absolutely right. We batted around, and I got a base hit uh, because because – I remember I was up at it, and Ozark is yelling to Schmidt, get in, get in. And, and, and Mike got way in, and I ended up hitting a ball by him. <laughs> 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 and he, put his, he put his hands out like, what do you want me to do? That's what right. Do you want me to do? So, you know, that, that, was, that was great too, Tommy, because it was good. I know when I, when I went to Atlanta, okay, and, and that's where it ended. But the, 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 the first game I went to Atlanta, I think, they had 32,000 walk-up sales. So I know one guy was rooting for me, and that was Ted Turner. Absolutely. Because in those days, they were drawing six, 8,000, and that was it. But that, that hitting streak did a lot of good for a lot of different people. Well, I just can't even put into words uh, through the eyes of a whatever I was, 14-year-old kid, to be at Shea Stadium for the first time ever. And when uh-huh. you would come up, that crowd – and all the way through that entire hitting streak was unbelievable. Now, you, you end up leaving Cincinnati. Um, you know, you signed the highest contract in team uh, sports history. I mean, compared to now, I mean, it's hard to believe, right? Four years, I remember $3.2 million to go to Philadelphia. 10000 a year. It's unbelievable. Were you sad to leave Cincinnati? I didn't want to leave. But uh, they already made up their mind. They wouldn't invest in, in Morgan and not Rose. Okay, but uh, that's my hometown. I mean, I got all the records there. They play on Pete Rose Way. I didn't want to leave, uh, but but there again, I had the opportunity to choose where I wanted to go. I mean, if if I had to do all over again, Tommy, I would have took St. Louis because Augie Bush offered me a Budweiser distributorship. Yeah, I'd like to have one of those now. Oh yeah, well then. Yeah. Because you remember he gave Roger Maris one. To come to the the Cardinals. Yep, that's exactly he gave, right. He gave him one in uh, uh, where Florida State is, Tallahassee. Right. And that was a, it, 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 or I turned down a, an already proven oil well for Mister Kaufman. Okay, I, I went to negotiate with the Galbraiths in, in Pittsburgh. Now I'm going to tell you one thing, Tommy. You'll understand this. They had racehorses. Okay, they had great racehorses. And, and if Mr. Galbraith would have convinced me that 
he had a derby winner with balls as big as a basketball, I'd have been at Pittsburgh Park. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, Mr. Galvin dropped the ball there. There's no doubt about it. He dropped the ball. And then the Phillies, because I like Boa, I like Schmidt. I used to go out with him when they come in at Cincinnati to eat. I like Wazinski. And I think I, I I figured it out that their only problem in the 70s was what? The Reds. That's right. So if I leave the Reds and go to Philly, they don't have that problem no more. And it didn't work the first year. And I had a great year. hit 330, a couple hundred hits. But it did work the second year. We yep. won the World Series in yep. 1980. Yep. Went it in 1980. And, and then you're there. You go, you go to the playoffs three years in a row. Um, yeah. and, and then you go to Montreal for part of 1984. You do get hit yeah. number 4,000. And then in August, um, you know, you're hitting uh, roughly around 260. And now you become the player manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Um, did Tell me who they traded. Tell, who Tommy they traded? Lawless, I think. You're absolutely right. Right, you're right. Absolutely right. So when when you, I mean, player manager. I mean, obviously you you know baseball inside and out, but you've never managed. You've been playing a long time. Right. I mean, what what made you think you could kind of pull this thing off? Well, you know, if you ever watched me in the dugout when Sparky was there, I was always next to Sparky. I was always asking him why are you doing this and why are you doing that. And uh, when I become manager, what I did, Tom, is is. I had 12 managers, and I put the stuff that I liked the managers did into my program and the stuff that managers did I didn't like into my program. And, you, you know, you know what makes a good manager in baseball, Tom? Hmm. One thing. You know what it is? Winning. No, I mean, that obviously every manager wants to win. But what makes a good coach or a good manager is one thing. And I tell people this every day. Good players. For sure, sure. You don't know any managers that had horseshit players. That's right. That's right. No question about it. Well, you look at and Joe. I, you look at Joe Torrey. I mean, you know, he get, he gets run out of town in three different places till he shows up in the Bronx. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the, the Reds were minor league rich in those days. I mean, you know, I saw over thirty players get their their first major league hit uh, when I was manager. I mean, I, I managed Paul O'Neill, Barry Larkin, Chris Sabo, Eric Davis. Uh, I didn't bring Eric up, but the other three I did. Mm-hmm. Joe Oliver, Terry McGriff, I brought them up. Gary Reedus, uh, uh, Eddie Milner, Tracy Jones, Jeff Treadway, uh, Kurt Stillwell. I remember Kurt Stillwell was a really good prospect, and I had him and Larkin on the team at the same time. And I'll never forget, I'm in my office one day, and Larkin comes in. Hey, Skip, he called me Skip. He still does, actually. He said, I'm going to give you some advice. I said, what's that, kid? because he was from Cincinnati, went to Mahler High School. He said, you might as well trade Kurt Stillwell, because I'm going to be your shortstop for the next 15 years. He wasn't won. lying. And I traded Kurt to Kansas City, and he had a, he had a great career at Kansas City. He was a good player. He was I didn't want to trade him, but I had Barry Larkin. He's a Hall of Famer. You know, those are, those are the kind of things that, that the, the players give you an idea, and you carry on with it. I mean, I had so many great – I had Dibble. I had Charlton. I had Rob Murphy. Yeah, I had Carl Willis. I had Jeff Montgomery. I traded him to Kansas City. Who had, he had a great career at Kansas City. See, in other words, when I had players that I couldn't use, I wanted to give them an opportunity to play somewhere else, not just sit on my bench, okay, and take up time. You understand what I'm saying? No, sure, sure. You want to give everybody a chance to chase their dream. And that's why I made trades like I did. Because I wanted those guys to have the opportunity to play other places than sit behind Barry Larkin in Cincinnati or sit behind Eric Davis in Cincinnati. In September, the 11th of September, 85, you break Ty Cobb's record for the most hits in baseball history, 4192, a single to left center field off Eric Schau. Um, the crowd sell out, standing, cheering. Uh, for what seemed an eternity. I don't know if it seemed like that to you. And, and then finally, you know, you break down, and, and, and I've heard you, you talk about this a little bit, about you started thinking about your, your, your family. Well, here's what happened, Tom. Uh, actually, if you want to know the truth, the, 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 the fans give me a nine-minute standing ovation. 
nine minutes. Okay? When you get home tonight, your wife's cooking in the kitchen, stand there for nine minutes and clap. She doesn't want me to stand there that long. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't want me there that long. <laughs> so, so here's what happens. All right, five, six minutes was, was fine. Okay, the guys come out and, you know, everybody's congratulating you. And Marge brings the Corvette out and all that kind of stuff. But then all of a sudden, when it gets seven and a half and eight, you start thinking about everybody that was responsible for you being there that have left us. In my case, my dad, my uncle, my high school coaches, my Little League coaches, my manager that gave me a job, Fred Hutchison. They're all up, up in heaven. And you look up, and that just brings tears to your eyes. I held it good for six, seven minutes, but after eight, eight and a half, I couldn't hold it no more. Because everybody, that was the only time my, in my baseball career, Tommy, I was on the field and did not know what to do. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what to do. And the fans make it, you never know what to expect from fans. I mean, did I go into that game thinking I was going to get a nine-minute standing ovation? Nine minutes is a long time. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But, I mean, it's your hometown. You you are Cincinnati, and you are Cincinnati Reds baseball, even now to so many people. So, I mean, I'm not suggesting that that, that you're out of your mind if you didn't think it was going to be something like that. But, I mean, you know, I mean, that's what that town had been waiting for really since the day you came back um, from, uh, from, from Montreal on the trade. That's another thing, Tommy. When I came back, okay, a lot of people didn't think that I deserved the opportunity to, to break the record in 85. However, when I came back in August of 84, all right, I played every day the rest of the season, and I hit 360. Yep, yep. So I kind of deserved the opportunity to play in 1985. If I'd have hit 220, I wouldn't have took the roster spot the next year. But I, I deserve the opportunity to play in 1985 based on what I did the last six weeks of the season in 84. You retire uh, unofficially at the end of 86. Yeah. Um, you, you take over full-time as a manager. Uh, you win 426 games. You finish in second place four consecutive years. Now, you talked yeah. earlier about, you know, you got to have good players. I mean, you, you had that group that was coming together, of course, a year after you were gone. They win the World Series. But, you know, had you stayed on there, I mean, do you ever wonder what it would, be, what it would have been like? Oh, I don't wonder. Because let me tell you something, Tommy. If I was a basketball coach, they would say, man, he took a last-place team and finished second four years in a row. Well, 1990, okay, I'm going to name you four guys that Lou Pinella had that I didn't have. And if I'd have had the four years I finished second, I'd have won it every year. Billy Hatcher, career year. Glenn Braggs, career year. Uh, Randy Myers, career year. Hal Morris career year those four guys had career years in 1990 that's why the reds won it and that's i didn't have any of those guys my four years i finished second why well, i think you I could had, add mariano duncan to that list too well he didn't have a career year like the other guys yeah yeah he had a good year though he had a good year yeah you look at their stats they really helped that team get over the hump and lou did a great job and by the way lou Pinella, i would have never never traded Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill was a player. He was a good golfer, a good tennis player, left-handed, could run, good fielder. Lou traded him to the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Best thing ever happened to Paul. For sure. He made, he made millions of dollars, and he won a couple, three World Series. Mm-hmm. Okay? I didn't like to, I, I didn't like to trade uh, great players. And Paul O'Neill was a really good player. You know, I would never trade a Barry Larkin. I don't care who I got for him. I would never trade a Chris Sabo. I mean, Chris Sabo rubbed off on the other players. Sure. So did Larkin. I mean, those. Uh, I don't know if I rubbed off on those guys, but can you imagine a guy playing for the Reds when I'm manager of the Reds and not hustling? No. I didn't have no problem with guys running balls out. I had no problem with guys being on time for meetings, being on time for buses, airplanes, things like that. That's it. If you have a problem, child, in your organization or on your big league team, Tommy, I believe it's the manager's fault. If you got a guy that's late to practice, if you got a guy that don't run a ball out, that's the manager's fault. 
That's disrespectful to the manager. And if you're doing that, you're disrespecting your fans and the city you play for. That's, that's, that's the way I look at it. Okay. I never embarrassed the manager. I never embarrassed the fans. I didn't expect my players to embarrass uh, the manager or the fans or the, or the, or the ball club that they're playing for. In 1989, you're brought in by uh, then-commissioner Peter Uberoff and National League president at the time, Bart Giamatti, amid reports that you had been betting on baseball. What, what happened, Pete, at that meeting, and, and do you regret anything that happened in that initial meeting, if you could do it over again? I don't remember that. I don't remember that. Uh, I, I remember Bart Giamatti, but I don't remember Uberoff okay. being there when, when – uh, you know, I screwed up, Tommy. I, I was betting my team to win. I had so much love for those players. I just thought we were never going to lose. And I was wrong, and I paid the price. Uh, if I had everything to do over again, obviously I wouldn't bet on baseball. Okay, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of things a lot of people do that you, you, you can't erase. No doubt, no doubt. you got to live with it. you yep. got to live with it. And uh, uh, the only thing bad about that whole situation, as far as I'm concerned, Tommy, uh is when I got suspended in years following the suspension, baseball could care less if my family starved. What I mean by that, that baseball got in the way of me doing appearances for baseball or minor league teams or things like that. They wouldn't let me even be a part of the game of baseball. You might find this hard to believe. Well, you won't because you're, you're on top of things, okay? That I have never, never, been in the Reds clubhouse or the batting cage mm. to this day. You know, I, I mean, look, I, 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 you know, I, I get emotional just just thinking about the whole thing because when I was I growing mean, they up, and play, I, yeah, they played baseball at Great American Ballpark on Pete Rose Way. Yeah, I'm not allowed in the clubhouse or the batting cage. Now, you're going to tell me that I couldn't help some young players on the Reds become better players? Of course. I what do they think? They think I'm going to go in the clubhouse and tell the guys to bet on baseball? Right. Are they that stupid? Well, apparently they are. And, and I'm curious to get your, your impression of this, though. Now, here we are 30 years later, 30-plus years later, right? And at every turn, baseball is in bed with gambling. Oh, uh, you know, you, you've, got, you've got an entire television network Coast to coast, what was the Fox Sports regional networks that are named after now a casino. You actually yeah. have at Wrigley Field uh, booths you can go up and gamble. Uh, they're accepting hundreds of millions of dollars, the sport is, from That's gambling. That's what it's all about, Tommy. I, I know. And That's so, I mean, you, you, I mean there, there's got to be – I mean, you have to look at this thing, a party of Pete, and just say, I mean, come on. Well – I mean, people just don't understand it because it's all about dollars and cents. It's all about how much, how many bucks you can bring in, okay? How many dollars you can bring in. Did you know that not, not uh, let's say before 19, uh, 2019, okay, they, they put this rule in, baseball did. I don't even know if you know this. But before every game, there's 30 managers in baseball. 15 minutes before every game, Baseball has the manager has to email baseball his starting lineup. You know what they do with it? They email it to MGM Grant. So there's no situation where uh, Kershaw was supposed to pitch, and ten minutes before the game they scratched him. Right. The people who bet on Kershaw are getting screwed. That's how much in bed baseball is with gamblers. Or the gambling, uh, the gambling situation. How often, Pete, do you think about being in the Hall of Fame or not being never, in it? Never. Come on. Never. never. I don't. I don't. I don't. Let me tell you why. Because I screwed that up. Okay. If I'm ever given the opportunity, I'll be the happiest guy in the world. But they made my day in Cincinnati when they put me in their Hall of Fame. They made my day when they retired my number. Mm-hmm. They made my day when they built that statue of me outside the ballpark. So those are things that's going to last a lot longer than I'm going to last or you're going to last or your dad's going to last. Mm-hmm. Okay? We lived it. Okay? Everybody would like to go to the Hall of Fame. Now, I broke into 63. The first guy I played against that made the Hall of Fame 
was a guy named Stan Musial. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's the first player to five years after he retired went to the Hall of Fame. So really, since 19, what would that be, 60, 69 or so, I either played with or against most everybody who went in the Hall of Fame. So I know a lot about guys that are in the Hall of Fame. And if baseball thinks there's a bunch of altar boys up there, they got another, you know, they got another case coming. I'm never going to rat on anybody what they did or what they didn't do. And I'm not saying other guys gambled. I don't know that. I've seen athletes out here gambling uh, in Vegas mm-hmm. where it's legal. And most athletes that gamble, if it's legal, somewhere are going to gamble if it's illegal. Mm-hmm. And, but that don't make them bad guys. No, no. Not a bad guy. Nope. I, I just had a problem when I quit playing. And like you said about 10 minutes ago, uh, I, I never retired as a player. I just kept playing. Uh, I, I quit playing. You know, the last game I started, Tommy, uh, I got five hits. And I went 0 for 4, and I went 3 for 4. So the last three games, I went 8 for 13. And I just quit playing because my buddy, my best friend, uh, Tony Perez, was chasing the Latino home run record. And I let him play every day. And I think he ended up hitting more home runs than the guy he was chasing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was more important uh, to me than me playing playing out the string. Okay. Now, Barry Bonds beat my run scored record and Ichiro tied my 200 hit season, uh, 10 times. Those are the only two records that I've given up since I retired from baseball. And believe me when I tell you, I'm not, uh, acting arrogant or anything like that. Cause I'm not, you know, I'm not, no, you're I'm, not. No one's going to beat my record. No, yet. no, no Nobody. chance. Nobody. No, no, they don't play that way. They don't play that way. You got guys that, that he got a better chance of, of beating Reggie's strikeout record at twenty five hundred. I, oh, I, I don't know he... about you, Tommy. I, I don't know about you, but I live in Vegas and I watch two or three uh, games every day, and it's hard for me to watch games. It is. It really... It's really hard, and I and oh. I don't think we're alone in that regard. And I think there are a oh. lot of a lot of numbers that are proving that. I bet your I bet your dad watches the game. He must go crazy. I mean, because all you do is strike out, hit the ball in the air, pop up, hit home runs, no sacrifice bunny, no hit and runs, nothing. Just, I mean, every game. I mean, they had 10 home runs the other day at Cincinnati, okay? The other day, the Dodgers beat the Cubs. Two guys, Tommy, in the lineup with the Dodgers had 15 RBIs. Two guys. Yeah. How can two guys have 15 RBIs? Yeah. It's Both a, of them had grand slams. Yeah, it's a state of the game. I mean, it's walk, I home run, strikeout. That, that's it. Yesterday, and I forgot what team it is. Uh, they've hit home runs in fifteen or sixteen straight games. Mm-hmm. So when I played, guys hit home runs, but it wasn't this easy. Oh no, no, no! Heck, they're, they're, they're breaking home run records every year. They're going to tell me they took the sting out of the ball. That is BS. That ball was so lively. I saw one bounce here day in Cincinnati. Uh, behind the, the dugout and almost went to the second tier. I mean, it, 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 if that ball's not juiced, I'll kiss your ass. <laughs> and that's what they want. I mean, that's what baseball wants. It's just like, Tommy, I know you go crazy because you can't break up a double play. You can't pitch inside. Yep. You can't knock over a catcher, even though he's blocking the plate. I mean, there's so many rule changes. Baseball should work on one rule change, okay? Speed up the game. Yep. Beat every pitch, every. I watched a guy last night readjusted his gloves three times and they didn't throw a pitch. Mm-hmm. Every pitch, they step out and readjust their gloves. I, I, they they just strut around like they want it to be a four-hour game. And I know when I played, baseball players don't want long game. We like a two and a half-hour game. So do fans. Especially during the week, because kids got to get up and go to school. There's no doubt about it. I, I, there, there are just so many things I look at this game, and, and, and even not, not even going back to when you played. I mean, I'm just talking about going back even just 10, 12 years ago. It's not that I long mean, ago I, where you I, still had two-hour and 30-minute games. Yeah. I, watched two, I watched two games every day, sometimes three. Okay? And I'm going to tell you right now, I have no idea what the strike zone is. When I played, okay, before the game, 
these four guys walk from underneath the tunnel. One of them's got a mask in his hand. Now, I know right away he's the home plate umpire. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I look at him and I say, is he a high ball umpire? Is he a low ball umpire? Is he a pitcher's umpire? Is he a hitter's umpire? Is he a good umpire? Is he a bad umpire? And when I figure out what he is, I expect him, I expect him to be consistent that night. Mm-hmm. Just the night before I broke the record, I'm playing first base. Lee Wire is umpire at first base. I got along good great. I got along good with umpire, mostly. And Lee said, well, you'll break that record tomorrow night, Petey. I said, how do you know, Lee? He said, because I'm behind the plate. And you know I call a lot of strikes, and you'll be swinging your ass off. <laughs> he was absolutely right. Okay, if Dutch Renner was back there, I could be as patient as I want. His strike zone was about 12 inches. And I knew that as a player. Because I tell people this all the time, Tommy. You may disagree with it. I don't think you will because you're, you're smart baseball-wise. The easiest place to hit today is the big leagues. Because everybody sure. plays in the big leagues, everybody plays in the big leagues has hand-eye coordination. Mm-hmm. Agree? Oh, no question. Okay. So what happens when you get to the big leagues? The lights are better. The umpires are better. Pitch and control is better. And maybe most importantly, you're facing the same guys year after year after year. They don't get better. They don't get better. Once you're in the league for a year or two, you know all the pitchers. That's one reason why. I didn't go to the American League when I was a free agent. If I go there, I'm 40-some years old. i got to learn every pitcher that's new to me. And believe it or not, Tommy, I had problems with pitchers that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. Because the scout can't tell me guy's got a fastball and a curveball. Okay, is his fastball a runner? Is it a sinker? Is it straight? Is his curveball a downer? Is it a sidewinder? Okay. I had to see it to believe it, mm-hmm. to know what it is. And, and, and Tommy, I'm so tired of watching these players every pitch take something out of their hat and look at a scouting report. Yeah. Don't you have a meeting before the series to go over the hitters where you know how to play them? Oh, believe me, they're, they, they have more meetings than they've ever had in the history of, uh, of baseball, and for that matter, maybe any sport. I didn't think anybody had more meetings in football, but now since Sabermetrics has come on board, uh, I, I'm not sure there's a day that goes by there's not at least three or four meetings for a lot of players to have to go into now. guys will take their hat off and just face center field and look at the hitter that's hitting to see how the pitching. What happened to the, the meeting you went over? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like players are coming up every day that aren't there. Okay, is, is is this guy a good breaking ball hitter? If he is, don't throw him a breaking ball. Mm-hmm. Is he a good fastball hitter? Then throw it somewhere that he can't pull it out of the ballpark. You guys have no common sense. I I, I never looked at it. Once we had a meeting on the players, and no players were new for the next game, I knew how to play every player. I, mean, I knew it in my mind. I knew what every pitcher threw. That's part of my craft, mm-hmm. getting ready to face this pitcher. I mean, guys guys hit all pitchers like they've never seen them before, and the guy's been in the league five years. I don't get it. I just don't I don't understand it. I mean, I don't think I could be in a clubhouse today, Tommy. They look at me like I'm crazy. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, you're not alone in that regard. Uh, there are a lot of guys that are even 30, 40 years younger than you are that feel the same way. Scouts, um, you know, people that have been around the sport a long, long time, coaches. Um, I, I just hope that they, they, they find a way somehow, some way to, to, to start making some changes to the game because it's a game we both love, and it's not the same game that, that, that we watched and, in your case, played. Uh, and watch every single day. Pete, I could go on and on with you for days. You've been incredibly um, generous with your time. Um, I am forever a huge Pete Rose fan as a guy, uh, obviously as a player and a kid who grew up in Cincinnati. But, uh, man, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. you, You and I have one thing in common, my man, and I'll tell you what it is. We both got screwed, and you hang in there because you'll get back. Well, you hang in there because you'll get back too. Oh no, I'll, I'm I'm 80 years old. Don't worry about it. But uh, you're a young man. You're good at your craft, and someone eventually has got to give you a second chance. You come from good blood, buddy. Well, 
Thank you, Peter. Peter, all the best to you, your family. Uh, God bless you, buddy, and thank you enough for all your time today. Go Xavier. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. I'll see you, man. Zanex, that's right. Be well. Pete Rose, our guest, man, a guy. I mean, come on. How do you not love Pete Rose? Okay. You, 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 can, you can say whatever you want to say about the whole gambling thing. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay. I was close to it. I sound like Pete now. Okay. Um, but, man, I mean, it, it, it's 34 years not enough. Is it not enough? I mean, seriously. If Rob Manfred got out of bed tomorrow, and he's not the only one that, that makes this decision, okay? You know, the Hall of Fame, they would have to take him off the ineligible list, all those sorts of things. But, but we have people in this country who have committed felonies. And I'm talking about seriously hurting, killing, raping, doing all kinds of things to people, and and, and they're paroled, they're let out. This guy has been, quote-unquote, in baseball jail for 34 years. Isn't it enough? I don't know. All right, you've been dialed in with Tom Brenneman. We thank Dave Armbruster, our engineer, producer for everything. We'll catch you next week on Dialed In. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.